we've been talking about idolatry, which is an incredibly light and happy subject to get into. And uh, I have this uh, biblical scholar friend who was invited to speak and to, you know, kind of be a part of this ecumenical, which is like different faiths coming together at a Jewish synagogue. And he was talking about the New Testament, and he was talking about, uh, you know, why, you know, he thinks that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. And, you know, again, this, this Jewish space had invited him to kind of give this testimony and to, to show how he reads some of the, the what, what we call the Old Testament, what they would just call the Bible. And, and, and so he's offering all these, you know, insights into what he thinks the text is about. And it, it is sort of a dialogue format. And he's interacting with these people in the synagogue. And he is blown away by their responses. And, and, you know, they're talking to him about, well, what about this? They're asking these great questions. And he's like, you know, at the end of the meeting, he asks this woman, he's like, how do you guys read this so well? He's like, in my church, like, you know, I'll be talking about something that's in the Bible, and people have no idea what I'm talking about. And the woman looks at him and goes, we've been reading this stuff for thousands of years. This is not new to us. This is deep in our bones. And one of the ways that the Jewish people have have enacted in order to read the scriptures well is a practice called midrash. And midrash is, is a way of sort of reflecting on the text that often goes beyond the text, but it's just looking at it from different vantage points. And so it's looking at it this way. And sometimes like I read them and I'm like, wow, this is really beautiful and compelling and add something to what I think is going on here. Other times I'm like, this is way, way far out of what I think is going on here. But today we want to start with just what I think is a really, if nothing else, just a brilliant little midrash. And it's sort of answering the question, why did God choose Abraham to be the bearer of the covenant promise? You know, if you read Genesis 12, it just says, like, God told Abraham, go, and he went. We're not told why Abraham was chosen for that task. But as the Jewish people read and reflected on these texts over the course of many centuries, and it's so important for us as Christians to remember this, we have been engrafted to a story. If you're a Gentile, you've been engrafted into a story that is not your own. That should determine how we begin to look at these words. They are not given to us primarily. We're engrafted into the story. But a midrash on Abraham. So why was Abram chosen to be the bearer of the covenant promise? Well, Abram's father was a man named Terah. And according to this midrash, Terah was an idol manufacturer and seller. He was a purveyor of statues and idols. And one day, he went away and he left Abraham in charge of the store. A man walked into the store and wanted to buy an idol. And Abraham looks at him and he says, you're 50 years old and you're going to worship a statue that was made yesterday? And the man walked away, getting Abraham's point. He's like, okay, got that. The next day, a woman walked into the store, and she wanted to make an offering to the idols. She had some food for the idols to eat. And Abraham takes a stick, and he smashes all the idols in the store except for the biggest one. And then he puts the stick in the hand of the biggest idol. The woman is watching all this, and she doesn't really know what to do with it. But she walks away and thinking, like, okay, I've done my worship, my service. Later, Abraham's father, Terah, comes back. And looks around the store and says, what happened to the idols? And Abraham said, a woman came into the store, wanted to offer an offering to the gods. And they were all fighting over which one was going to receive the offering. And the biggest one won. 
Hera looks at him and goes, they're just statues. And Abraham looks at him with that like Justin Timberlake gif, like. Abraham says, you deny their knowledge, yet you worship them. Now, this is a, a, a funny story and, and it has so much to say about the kind of uh, the kind of wisdom and cleverness that we should often apply when we read the scriptures, especially the stories that Jesus tells are often very funny stories. But it's sort of the unstated truth about idols. They're supposed to do what we expect them to do. They're an exercise in certainty. They're supposed to stay put, right, at some level. The terms are clear. We give them what they want from us, whether, whatever offering that is, and they do for us what we want from them. This is religion without the mystery, the cult of certainty. And today, I want to look at idols from a slightly different vantage point than maybe we've been considering it thus far in our series. You know, oftentimes when we talk about idolatry in the church, we try to find something that's really bad or distorted and say, see, that's an idol. And I think especially those of us who kind of grew up in a Christian context of some sorts are like, yeah, we're not supposed to do that. That's, that's not right. We're not supposed to chase after those things. This is all true, but what about the things that we use that have all the trappings and veneer of religious and holy things, but we use them to keep at God at arm's length? And you think about this. There's so many slogans that we apply to God that are nowhere in the Bible. Well, God helps those who help themselves. Does he? Really? Interesting. Where's that? Everything happens for a reason. Oh, now we're stepping on toes. Does it? Is that right? That's in there? Huh. Didn't know that. But oftentimes, we kind of develop this slogan version of God. And in many ways, it's a way of keeping God at arm's length, keeping the terms clear. What does God want from me? Who is God? Okay, I've got him in my little box. I put him in his little place. And now we can all rest easy. We all know how to move forward. Isaiah 29, verse 13 says, The Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. The worship of me is based on merely human rules that they have been taught. And the first week in this teaching series, I looked at some of the warnings in the scriptures around idolatry and highlighted that humans were made to worship the creator God. God made us. He fashioned us in the womb. He breathed his very breath into us. We were made to give our lives in joyful devotion and adoration back to him. And it's in the freedom of that relationship that we actually become fully ourselves. We become fully human. Idolatry, on the other hand, is worshiping some aspect of the creation itself. Elevating that to the place of the creator. And this is an exchange that enslaves us. And it makes us less than human. We become what we worship. And in the biblical imagination, those who worship idols, and like what they're talking about are things like statues and carvings. Those who worship these kinds of things become like them. They can't move. They can't see. They can't hear. We become like what we worship. And if we become what we worship, then when we bow our hearts and our energy to idols, it makes us less than human. It makes us statue-like ourselves. It makes us hollow and rigid 
Or if we consider that an idol may not always be a thing, like a, a statue that we bow down to, but it could be a concept or an idea. We become like that concept, vaporous. We become without form, what the Bible calls chaff, blowing in the wind. In the book of Exodus, God guides the people for part of their journey as a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. And the first commandment given to the people, these newly liberated slaves at Mount Sinai in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, whether you're from a faith background or not, you're probably familiar with these. The first commandment is that he, God says to the people, he says, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. And then he says the second commandment, make no idols for yourself. Perhaps you've asked yourself the question, before, why doesn't God just make it obvious what he wants from us and who he is? Like, why doesn't he make it easy and make it clear? And can I tell you, that's a really good question. It's an important question. Now, why did God, like, think about the story of Exodus. Why did God ever stop showing up as a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire? Imagine with me, if when we were gathered here on Sunday mornings, that as we came to worship, a pillar of cloud descended on the Arts Council, and everybody driving by here on Robeson Place was like, huh, something is going on there. Perhaps I should go and see what that thing is, right? Like, that would be pretty remarkable, and it would certainly invite people at least to see the spectacle. Or if when we gathered for worship and prayer nights, there was like a column of fire that showed up around us, like it would be pretty clear. We wouldn't have to make many argumentative cases for the reality of Jesus. We'd be like, um, if you want to know a little bit about God, you can look at the column of fire that is currently spiraling down in our midst, and um, that will give you a little bit of insight. Why did God ever stop showing up in this way, it'd be pretty easy to invite people to Easter. Who could ever doubt that if we gathered and God was so present and so obvious that everybody would be like, oh, there is a God. He's real. Well, if you know the book of Exodus, the question, who could ever doubt, is answered by pretty much everybody. Like, they're, they're walked out, they're walk out of Egypt on dry land. The walls of the sea are around them. They're, like, amazing, miraculous liberation. And two chapters later, they're like, um, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? And God's like, did you see the water thing? I got the food. We're good. The people then begin romanticizing their days in Egypt. They're like, you know, we know we were slaves, but at least in Egypt, we had pots full of meat, right? And so perhaps the question, as Jesus will later say, even if you were to see someone raised from the dead, you still would not believe. Perhaps then the hesitation of God to do wonders of shock and awe, to compel people to believe, and the fickle responses of the people, even to the amazing thing that God has done, is cluing us that there's something quite different that God wants from us. There's something different going on. Perhaps the question is not about us being certain. You see, certainty is not faith. And I'm going to spell out what I mean by certainty. The opposite of faith is not doubt. I'm going to say that again. The opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith often is certainty. And what I want to do today is just make the argument that our desire for certainty, while completely understandable, is more often than not our desire to make God in our image. 
our desire to make a God that we can manage, control, manipulate, uh, our desire to put God in his place. Say, okay, God, you get this part of my life. That's the terms. We've agreed to the contract. The idols stay where they're put. It's our desire to make God in our image. The first people that were made in God's image were given a big, flourishing garden to cultivate and to tend alongside God. But in the garden was also a place of prohibition. God says, he says, I give you every tree, everything in this garden for you, for your delight, for your food, for you to tend. However, there is one tree that it is not good for you to eat from. And many biblical scholars point out that the word used for this tree, the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is the Hebrew word yada. And it has the sense not just of experience or awareness, but judgment. It means the human person would be claiming and eating from this tree the right to determine what is good and what is evil, which in the biblical imagination and anthropology falls outside of what it means to be human. Only the creator God who says, let there be light, who is light and in whom there is no darkness, has the capacity to determine what is good and what is evil. It's interesting then that the first thing that the serpent does, who is more crafty than the other creatures, the text says, is he casts doubt upon the commandment that God has given. And in doing so, the serpent is removing the command from the context of relationship. The serpent, you know, what will later become as we reflect on the scriptures, maybe some sort of precursor to what we know as Satan, the devil. The serpent is the first being in the scriptures to objectify God. To talk not to God, but about God. And the serpent comes to the woman and the man and he says, no. Did God say you couldn't eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman clarifies. She says, no, no. No, he said, just not, not that one. Oh. The serpent says, you know, in that day that you eat from it, you will not die. The serpent casts doubt upon the structure that God has wired into the, the fabric of creation. And the man and the woman in this interaction see that the fruit is pleasing to the eye, useful for making one wise, and they take and they eat exactly as God told them not to. And it's in that moment that they are soon certain because God said, on the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And the man and the woman are overcome with this sense of shame and nakedness. They try to sew together figs and leaves in order to hide themselves. And God will later ask them, he says, who told you you were naked? Again, that first feeling of shame. Shame is that sense that there's something wrong with us. And in that space, the man and the woman become certain that they, in fact, will die. But God's mercy, even then, from the very beginning of the, the kind of journey back to redemption, where God is reclaiming what he has made, God, in that moment, breaks our calculus. There is mercy there. God sews together clothes for them and responds with mercy. Ecclesia, the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is certainty. We tend to think of intellectual certainty. What do I know for sure? But often the people that Jesus has the greatest difficulty in communicating and teaching about the kingdom of God and his grace during his life and ministry are those that have created rigid categories for the way that God can and cannot work in the world. You think of the Sadducees who says there is no resurrection from the dead. 
which conveniently kind of uh, bolsters their political position in the first century world. They were the ones that had a relative merit of power given to them by the Romans. And if there's no resurrection, there's no revolution that awaits, then you, know, you can kind of preserve the status quo. The Pharisees see that Jesus eats with sinners and tax collectors, and they say, does your master know the kind of people that he is eating with? And Jesus says, I came to seek and to save the lost. Again, the people that Jesus often has the greatest difficulty with are not those that doubt, not those that want to know more, not those that are open to the fact that God might be speaking a fresh word. The people that God often has the most difficulty reaching are those that say, that's not who God is. That's not how he works. And Jesus will confront these people again and again. And our desire for certainty often is the ground where idolatry springs up and it chokes out the life that God wants to cultivate in us. Idols, more often than not, start out as things that we can manage. They're predictable, they're static, but they soon become something with a life of their own because we give our life and our energy and our attention to them. Do you have those friends in your life that are what we'll call life-giving. Do you spend time with them? And you're like, this is the way the world was meant to function. You sit down to a meal with them, and they, they, they say things to you that encourage you or that illuminate things for you that maybe you've been thinking about, or there's laughter and joy. You're like, this is what I am after. We all have those people in our lives, I hope. But do you also have those people in your life that will, are what we'll call a little bit difficult, maybe, maybe a bit draining after you spend some time with them? And again, this is not a judgment on them as a person. It often has more to say about you and your, your own personality uh, quirks and flaws than it does about the other person. But, you know, sometimes people, are, just because we don't quite jive with them, are, can be hard for us to be around. It requires heavy effort. You feel tired at the end. You're like, I want to take a nap. The difference between worshiping God and worshiping idols is a lot like this. You see, when we give worship to God, he doesn't exhaust our lives because he is the creator, the source and the fountain of life. But when we give worship to idols, they drain us of our life. Because they have no life within them to give. They can only take. They can only consume. Idols close us off to relational openness to God, either through shame, through a false sense of control, or through comfort and pleasure that inoculate us. They close us off to the words of God. And when the words of God are forgotten or ignored or distorted, we try to construct a certainty, a reality that we can hold onto of our own. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is tempted by Satan to do just this. He's been fasting in the desert for 40 days. It's really what we have structured Lent off of as a, as a church throughout history. It's Jesus' 40 days of fasting and testing in the wilderness. And he has been fasting. And at the end of this period of 40 days, he's hungry. And Satan comes to him and says, If you are the Son of God, command those stones to become bread. Now, Jesus still has lingering in his ears his own baptism some 40 days earlier when God, as he came up out of the water, pronounced over Jesus that you are my son with whom I am well pleased. This is the pronouncement and the blessing that would fill all of Jesus' ministry. 
But you can imagine after 40 days, that voice might have grown a bit faint. And Satan comes to him and notices temptation. If, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And certainly Jesus could have done this. He had the opportunity, the power. We see him work this power in so many other ways. He could have secured his own provision, sustained himself, but he resists. And instead, he responds. He says, people... We don't live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Every word from the mouth of God. We construct idols of certainty that God is this or God is that. And what's available to us is a relatedness that never ceases. A God who spoke in the beginning, let there be light. A God who has never stopped speaking. And the antidote to our meager reaches for certainty to construct God in our own image is every word from the mouth of the living God to live a life that is conversant with and led by God in his presence and to find his abundant and liberating love. When the people of God throughout the the scriptures are locked in systemic cycles of idolatry, when they have lost the law, or have convinced themselves because everything looks good from a political or a religious or an economic perspective that they must be blessed by God, God would speak a fresh word through the prophets. And he would say to them, you think everything is going well because you have these categories, or you think you, everything is going well because you've ignored this part of what I've said to you. Come back, repent, turn. The fresh word of God breaks our idolatry and invites us to repent and be restored. John 1 describes Jesus as the word of God made flesh. The God who spoke in the beginning continues to speak as his word takes on skin and bone. Every word from the mouth of God, this is our life. The Sadducees, who were so certain that there is no resurrection, he says to them, God is the God of the living, not the dead. And throughout the scriptures, the people tried to negotiate with God. They tried to keep God in his place. The whole nation of Israel, upon leaving Egypt, meets with God, but they find the ordeal too wild, too fiery. And they say to Moses, you from now on, even though we all could have this kind of interaction with God, this face-to-face interaction, you go on our behalf. Moses goes and he meets with God on the mountain. His face shines so much that the people say, whoa, your face is glowing. Like, put a veil over that thing. Again, there's this tension in the story between God wanting to speak and wanting to give more and the people saying, okay, God, you've gone far enough. David and Solomon both want to build God a temple, even though God says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What is a house that you would build for me? The Pharisees trap their experience of God in miles of red tape. And Jesus judges the temple and says, I am the temple. I am the way to God. I am the vine. We put God on a cross and put God in a tomb. And yet God keeps breaking out of the places that we would put him. He keeps breaking the bonds of the things that we think we want or we need. I guess what I'm trying to say here today to us today is that for many of us, God is nothing more than an idea or an idol. God is something that we're trying to put in his place, to put in a church building, to put in a Bible, to put into an hour a week and say, okay, God, I've done enough for you this week. Are we good? 
And here's the deal. I, I say actually none of this to shame you or to shame me. I think we do this without knowing it, but without every word from the mouth of the living God, we construct God in our image. We negotiate this life with a small hope. The Pharisees were radical about wanting to serve God. But they were so, so small in their hope of what God might do in their midst. And that's why they missed Jesus. And friends, I think so many of us are trying to negotiate life with a God that we have constructed in our image. And we are trying to carry the burden on our own. We are living in a sense of despair and trying to breathe in this world. And Jesus is saying to us that your life is from every word that comes from the mouth of the living God. I want to wake us up to this story today. Not because God always wants us to do something radical and, and like unforeseen, but because sometimes God is trying to shake us and say, you're not alone. The God who spoke at the beginning is still speaking now. I love what Annie Dillard says about this. She says, on the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of the conditions that they're in. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. Okay, no hats in here. Good. We should all be wearing crash helmets. None of those either. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews where the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. Eugene Peterson says this way. He says, we're fond of saying that the Bible has all the answers and that is certainly correct. The text of the Bible says, sets us in a reality that is congruent with who we are as created beings in God's image. And what we are destined for in the purposes of Christ. But the Bible also has all the questions. Many of them that we would just as soon were never asked of us. And some of which, which we will spend the rest of our lives doing our best to dodge. The Bible is a most comforting book. It is also a most discomforting book. In 2 Kings 22, the people of God had lost the law. They had just put it away. They couldn't find it. Generations of kings doing whatever they wanted, and they just lost the scrolls with the covenant written upon it. And one day, one of Josiah's, the newly crowned king after 18 years of his reign, comes to the king and says, um, I found this scroll, and it seems kind of important. We should read it. Turns out it's the book of the law, per perhaps the book of Deuteronomy. And Josiah hears the words of the, law, the, of the covenant of the law, and as he hears these words, he tears his robes. In sorrow and in repentance, he knows that they have not been living these words. And Josiah was a good king, trying his best to serve the people. And in 2 Kings 23, Josiah, in response to this reading of the law, renews the covenant. He says, we have to change the way we are living because this, these words have created a new world, a world that we were not previously living in light of. And I, I want to read just an extended section of this text because I think it shows to us. And what I'm trying to communicate to us today is that so often we focus on idols as these individual things. But often there's this upstream source of idolatry in our midst. That is, we live a story that is too small. We serve a God that is not big enough. 
We, we actually downplay our significance in light of this God. You were bought with a price, the price of Jesus on the cross. And so look at what happens in response to the unveiling of the law in this culture. 2 Kings chapter 23, beginning in verse 3. Then the king called together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. He went up to the temple of the Lord with the people of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets, all the people from the least to the greatest. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the temple of the Lord. The king stood by the pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and to keep his commands, his statutes and decrees with all his heart and soul, thus confirming the words of the covenant written in this book. That's Deuteronomy 6. Then all the people pledged themselves to the covenant. Now look what happens. The king ordered Hilkiah, the high priest, the priest next in rank, and the doorkeepers to remove from the temple of the Lord all the articles made for Baal and Asherah, who were pagan deities, and all the starry hosts. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron Valley and took the ashes to Bethel. He did away with the idolatrous priests appointed by the kings of Judah to burn incense on the high places on the towns of Judah and on those around Jerusalem. Those who burn incense to Baal, to the sun and to the moon, to the constellations, to all the starry hosts. He took the Asherah pole from the temple of the Lord to the Kidron Valley outside Jerusalem and burned it there. Now, I know what's going on here. I'm reading an extended section of scripture and like your brain's like, boop. But there's more. He also tore down the quarters of the male shrine prostitutes that were in common, uh, common to the people. He tore down the quarters of the male uh, shrine prostitutes in the temple of the Lord. There was prostitution going on in the temple, the quarters where women did weaving for Asherah. Josiah brought all the priests from the towns of Judah and desecrated the places that were dedicated to gods that were not God, where the priests had burned incense. He broke down the gateway at the entrance to the gate of Joshua, the city governor, which was on the left of the city gate, although the priests of the high places did not serve at the altar there. Now, again, I understand the, the room dynamics. What I'm trying to illustrate to you is that when we get the story right... When we get the story of who God is and what he has done and what it means, the significance of it, stuff begins to change. Our life begins to change. Our approaches to politics, to injustice, to that which is affecting our neighbor becomes paramount to us. And we can live our lives with this settled security that God is kind of, you know, he stays over here. Or he does, you know. I reach out to him when I'm in need or that kind of thing. We can live with these slogans or we can immerse ourselves in the story. The people didn't know how thoroughly they had been polluted by a small story, by a forgotten story. Because of all the idols that stood between them. God wants us to root the idols out of our lives. And friends, I could go through and be like, let's, let's try to find some idols in here. What are you struggling with? I could do that. But I think there's a Holy Spirit who loves you and convicts you of those things. But I also want you to see this. At the end of 2 Kings 23, it says, The king gave this order to all the people. Celebrate the Passover. So as all this deconstruction is happening around, the people are being brought back to right worship with God. The king says to the people, Celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God. As it is written in the book of the covenant, Neither in the days of the judges who led Israel, nor in the days of the kings of Israel, had any such Passover been observed. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, 
this Passover was celebrated to the Lord in Jerusalem. Ecclesia, do you know what Passover is? Celebrate this Passover. It's about the story. It's about remembrance. It's about slaves being set free. Remember who you are. Remember whose you are. Remember that you were liberated, that you were bought with a price. Ecclesia, we need the words of God. We need the fresh word with God because we so easily negotiate with our certainty. We so easily allow God to play such a small role in our lives. And he wants... He wants to bring us to the party, to the feast that invites the entire world. This is who our God is. He tells us the truth in a world of lies. Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. The Sadducee said, there is no resurrection. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The Pharisee says, look, your master is eating with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus says, I came to seek and to save the lost. We said, crucify him. We'd rather have Barabbas, a political leader, a king to lead us. And Jesus said, forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. And on that Easter Sunday morning, Jesus invites us to the feast. And he says, behold, I make all things new. That the world so much bigger because of what God has done and our place in it is so much more significant. And today, I simply want us to see our idols of certainty for what they are, small gods that we can manage.